I have been at that tomb on numerous occasions. Sometimes it has been very quiet, uh, groups just silently moving around. And then other times it has been filled in that garden tomb area with singing of songs of the resurrection. I can remember uh, one particular time when we visited and there were people there from Ethiopia and people there from Kenya and people there from another Middle Eastern country and people there from South America and they were all singing praises to God in their own language and I just thought to myself this is what heaven's going to be like. It's going to be people from every tribe and tongue that are going to be gathered together for one reason. The tomb is empty and he's alive. I want to invite you to take your Bibles to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2. As we look this morning at the subject of he came to save sinners. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21. Uh, I texted Kay Dunn last night and I said, uh, I'm using one of Ron's Bibles today because I felt like it would be appropriate as much as Ron preached in this church and as many Bible conferences as he did uh, to use it, particularly on this Easter Sunday. And, and to use it. I can't read his notes in it. He wrote in about a one-point font. Uh, I can't, but I can't even read the Bible. It's like in a two-point font. But uh, I've, I've got my notes in his Bible today, and I want to read these great words from the Apostle Peter, who is writing to a church to remind them of who they are and what God has done and what they are supposed to do in light of that. 1 Peter 2.21 For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Now, let me just stop here. That word example means to produce a handwritten copy exactly as you saw it. As a student of Jesus that your life is to produce a handwritten copy so that when people see you, they don't see a caricature of Christ. They see Christ uh, in your life who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. That little term in verse 24, so that, tells us that Jesus is our example as our savior He's our example, but there's also an expectation that he has on us because he gave his life for us. Now, we live in a crazy world. Everybody agree with that? Amen. I mean, it, it's just, we just, the train is off the rails. And people are depressed, and there's anxiety, and there's a rise in abuse, 
and a rise in, in suicide and a rise in demand for rights and uh, teachers that don't want to teach and students that don't want to learn and, and people that don't want to talk to each other. I mean, we're, we're in a crazy world. Can I tell you something? For the believer, Christ is the rebuttal of every attitude like that. Christ is the one that raises our eyes to possibilities that we don't wallow in the mud of preferences and lose our ability to communicate the gospel with other people. Jesus was sinless, and yet he suffered. We are easily deceived, and yet the writer says there was no deceit found in his mouth. We want to get even. He did not revile in return. Jesus knew that the Father had the last word. Why? Because with all of the questions about why this and why now, why are we going through this and why do we put up with that, at the very hardest moment in human history, God becoming man and taking our sin, Jesus entrusted his life to the Father. Can I tell you, you have a Father that you can entrust your life to. You may not get all the answers that you want in life, but you have a father that you can entrust your life to. Jesus knew that the father had the last word. And so when the scripture reveals Christ as our Lord and as our Savior, he, he is sinless in his steps. He is silent in his suffering. And he is a sacrifice for our sin. Whatever is going on in the issues of life, the question comes, are you entrusting him who is able to judge righteously? Are you waiting and patient enough to know that God will get the last word? That heaven rules and God gets the last word. You see, he bore our sins, not just the sins of the world, not just bad people, my sins, your sins, our sins. And without the cross, there's no hope. To reject Christ is to make an eternal decision to spend eternity separated from the one who died to show you that he loved you. And so the church not just on Easter Sunday, but every Sunday, has been given the clear mission to share the gospel of the good news to a lost world, that the just died for the unjust, that we have been called out of darkness, the darkness of sin and death and decay, into his marvelous light. Jesus in his life and death and suffering did not die to just be a good example. He was not just a good teacher or a good prophet or a good man or a moral leader. He was a sinless savior. He is a sinless savior. This is not, Easter is not about a religious celebration. Easter is about a divine interruption into a sinful world. Paul says it this way, in the fullness of time, he came. When did he come? He came when the road system of the Roman Empire 
built on the backs of other people, beaten down to build roads. He came so that the gospel could go out on those roads to the known world. He came in the fullness of time. I believe the fullness of time also means he came when nobody could take a selfie with him. He came when nobody could text and say, meet me on the corner, Jesus is over here. He came when people had to speak and see and make an effort to find him. He came in the fullness of time to bridge the gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament, to bridge the gap between lost man and a loving heavenly father at the right time, at the right moment, not one minute too late, not one minute too early, Jesus showed up on earth as a baby to live a sinless life and to die for sinners. And if that hadn't happened, none of us would be here today. That is why we're here, because he died for our sin. His suffering was not for his own sin. He had no sin. Even Pilate, looking for something, said, I find no fault in him. The Pharisees and the Sadducees that wanted him killed had to trump up charges and pay people to lie or misrepresent something he had done to try to get a charge against him. We are sinners there are charges against us. No one would have to lie about us and say, that person is a sinner. They've done things wrong. And to us who are sinners, Jesus said, I came to take away your sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Sinful man crucified the sinful, sinless Savior. See, Jesus was executed like a criminal. There has never been, not by the Nazis, not by the communist Russians who killed 60 million of their own people during World War II, not by any terrorist, there has never, ever, ever been a more vile, wicked, brutal form of execution than the cross. It was designed for ultimate suffering and for long suffering and pain and agony and humiliation. This was what Jesus went through. The fullness of time was when he was prophesied that he would die for our sins, the cross had not even been invented yet as a method of crucifixion, as a method of death for criminals. He was guilty of no sin. He had no evil thoughts. He never did an evil deed. Peter takes us to the cross and thinks back on Isaiah's words. Now, they're going to come up on the screen in just a minute, but Isaiah 53 describes the life and death and resurrection and exaltation of Jesus Christ in 12 verses. And it was written hundreds of years before his birth, hundreds of years before crucifixion was invented. Isaiah wrote these undeniable words about a Messiah 
who would come out of Israel who would save people from their sins. The innocent died for the guilty. The sinless son died for sinners. Isaiah 53 in verse 3. He was despised. You're going to see that word twice. Despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised. And we did not esteem him. Surely, our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our, for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Now, don't miss the personal pronouns. This is not a generic statement. Our griefs, our sorrows, our transgressions, our iniquities, all of us, every person, man, woman, boy, and girl, every tribe and tongue, from beginning to end, he died for all, ours, personal. Not in general, not in theory, not to start a religion, but to change people to change lives. Isaiah 53, 8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as far for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. We had broken God's laws. He built a bridge to lawbreakers. We had sinned against a holy God. He came as a sinless Savior. Listen, Isaiah says, verse 7, He did not open his mouth. <clears throat> a lot of sin begins in the mouth. And Jesus said the mouth just reveals what's in the heart. And the reason we need a Savior is because if you're around anybody long enough, their mouth is going to reveal some sin. And where does that come from? It comes from our heart. We say what's on the inside. Nobody makes us say anything. Uh, we say what's on the inside. And when we do that, we realize we're sinners. You know how to help somebody understand that they're a sinner? Ask them to listen to how they talk. Ask them to listen to how they talk to people that they think are not as good as they are. Or that they believe they're better than other people, or they have risen to something else, or that it's just the way I am. And Jesus, he did not open his mouth. Verse 9, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. This refers to any sin of the tongue. No deceit in his mouth. And when Jesus spoke, he did not mess... Let's see, how do I want to say this? He did not misrepresent the character of his father. Every other religious leader in history 
has misrepresented the character of God. All these other religions, they have misrepresented the character of God the Father. Jesus did not. Jesus said, I speak because the Father tells me what to speak. He he didn't fail in his task. He was tempted in all things as we are, but he did not sin. He didn't strike back like a sheep led to slaughter. He was beaten and oppressed, but he never pleaded for his rights. He never demanded his rights. He never said, well, I ought to get some witnesses here at this trial. He was wounded. He was pierced. He was crushed. He was reviled. He didn't seek revenge. 1 Peter 2.23, he uttered no threats. Now, let's just be honest. If you thought you were right and everybody else was wrong, at some point in a brutal process like this, you would have said, I want to tell you something. I'm going to get even with you. You haven't heard the last of this. You know, I I got family, I got friends, I got people in the know that can come take care of you for what you're doing to me. Jesus didn't do that. Not one time. Not one time. Not even to Caiaphas, who was supposed to be the ultimate representation of God before the people who took the offering for sin into the holies of holies on the day of atonement. Not even to Caiaphas did he say, I want to tell you something, bud. There's a place in hell for you. You know why? Because he was dying for Caiaphas too. He wanted Caiaphas to know the love of God. And the only way that the love of God could truly be revealed is on a cross and a sacrifice. He had the power to get even. He had the power to destroy them. He suffered verbal abuse from the Sanhedrin in Mark chapter 14. He was mocked and ridiculed by the Roman guards and by one of the thieves in Mark chapter 15. But he said nothing. He said nothing. And he offered us free salvation. Free for us. We don't have to work to earn it. But it cost the Father his son. We weren't worth saving. I want to tell you something. I'm not worth saving. You're not worth saving. Nobody is worth saving. Except God thinks so. And that changes our paradigm. That changes the way we think. Is that God thinks people are worth saving. Well, not that guy, not that person, not, no, not, not them. No, God changes the way we think. He loved us enough to save us. If we thought seriously about our sin, it wouldn't be flippant and easy for us. We are sinners by choice and by nature. See, as we get older, we choose to sin, but we choose to sin because by nature we are sinners. And I know when you have a baby in your house, you, you think that they, they can do no wrong. I mean, you, you know, they can do no wrong. Especially those of you that are grandparents. My grandchildren can do no wrong. 
They are perfect. Nobody else has perfect grandchildren but me. Give it time. Just give it time. They'll break something that your grandmother gave you. And then they will see your old nature come out with them. Secondly, salvation is an act of grace. Salvation is an act of grace. Religion is man trying to work himself to God. I'm trying to do good works. I'm, I'm trying to do enough good things that somehow that my good will outweigh my bad. Well, your righteousness, the Bible says, is as filthy rags. There's none righteous, no, not one. Religion is trying to work itself up and hopefully do enough good that God will say, well, I accept you because you're a good person. Can I tell you something? This world is filled with a lot of people that on the surface are good people. But their hearts are dark with sin. And they can put on a front of goodness, but their hearts are separated from God. Christianity is saying, you don't have to work to get to heaven. Christ did the work and it is done. It is finished so that you can be saved. Jesus did not die as a martyr. He died as a sinless substitute. He, he, he was not a martyr. He was a substitute, 1 Peter 2.24. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. We are not saved by following his example or his teachings. I mean, I, I've heard people say, well, I'm just trying to live up to the Beatitudes. Can I tell you something? Apart from the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, you can't live up to the Beatitudes. You're not good enough. You'll blow it at some point. Well, I'm just trying to be better than the other people around me. It's still not good enough. We are saved by his blood, which takes away the sin of the world. Why did Jesus have to die? Because man fell in the garden in a perfect environment with perfect fellowship with a perfect God. Adam and Eve sinned and they fell and they got kicked out. Let me remind you, man did not fall in hell. He fell in paradise. You say, well, if my situation was better, I'd act better. No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. Because our nature is to rebel against God. Our nature is to revile and repel God and say, I am running my own life. I'm the captain of my own ship. I determine my destiny. I decide what I want to do and where I want to go and how I want to live. That's rebellion. And if God had put you in a perfect garden and said to you, you can have anything and everything in this garden that God says is good, except you cannot eat fruit from this tree because if you do, you will die. The first thing you would do is go eat fruit from that tree because you have a right to that fruit. We all would. That's just the way we are. Adam and Eve ate us out of house and home and we've been eating like crazy under COVID. So <laughs> all of us are in stretchy pants right now. So. Mm -hmm. 
Because of sin, we are unholy and we are hopeless, and God's solution was a sacrifice. Now, if you think about it, in the Old Testament, sheep were sacrificed in atonement as a covering, and, and turtle doves and all, all sorts of things were sacrificed. And Scott Dawson talked about this some uh, last week, and Garrett talked about it uh, last night, so I'm, I'm going to talk about it. It's the trinity of truth right here. I want you to think about this. For over a thousand years, priests never sat down. Priest got up in the morning. His wife said, what's your day like today? He said, I'm going to sacrifice sheep. I'm going to cut their throats. I'm going to spill their blood. I'm going to pour it over the altar. He gets home. He's got blood splattered all over him. He's got blood everywhere. He lays down and he's exhausted and said, how was your day? He said, I just killed sheep all day long. Killed sheep all day long. Gets up the next day, what's your day like? He said, I'm going to go and I'm going to kill sheep all day long. All day long. Thousands of years. And there's no seat in the temple or the tabernacle. When you read the design of the temple and the tabernacle, there's no seat because the priest work was never done. But when Jesus came, he said with outstretched arms, it's finished. And when he ascended to the Father, he sat down at the right hand of the Father because he was the shepherd of Israel. He was the chief shepherd, the great shepherd, he was the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. He was the priest and the sacrifice, and it is finished. The work of providing salvation for man is done, but it has to be received. Amen. And so Jesus sits. Why? Because there's nothing else that can be done to provide salvation for you. It is a finished work. Jesus took our sins, past, present, and future, on himself so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds we are healed. There are four, I hate to get real technical here, but there are four relative clauses in uh, verses 21 through 25 about Christ's suffering. Number one, Christ who did not commit sin, this all impacts us, Christ who did not retaliate. Christ who bore our sins. And Christ by his wounds we are healed. Now Isaiah 53 says in verse 5, we are healed. Peter says in chapter 2 in verse 24, you are healed. Isaiah is referring to the Jews being saved and Peter is referring to the Gentiles being saved. Now, if you study this and, and dig in the languages, if you study this, this is not a promise of physical healing. Okay? It's not. We would all like for that. Listen, I would like for the health and wealth gospel guys to be right. But everybody's going to die of something. I mean, there's, there's a death date with your name on it. And you will either die in Christ 
or you will die apart from Christ. You will either die saved or you will die lost. Here's what that phrase means. The fatal physical wounds of the suffering Savior heal the fatal spiritual wounds of sinners. Jesus suffered physically and he suffered separation from his Father so the sin that condemned you to a death that you could not overcome could be overcome by his blood. So sinners can be saved today. Maybe one of you. Like sheep, we need someone who can lead us. Verse 25, for you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. You see, if you don't know Jesus, I want you to understand something. He died for you. You can know about Jesus and not know him. You can have facts up here in your head that you can rattle off, but not have him in your heart. The old preachers used to say there's about 18 inches between heaven and hell. And that's knowing him in your head and knowing him in your heart. You can quote the Bible. Listen, there, there are people that have grown up in church that just live totally alien to the ways of God. And then when they die, some preacher says, well, they're in glory today. No, they knew him in their head, but they didn't know him in their heart. Your heart is the seat of where God operates in your life. Just like your body cannot operate without your physical heart pumping, your spiritual life cannot operate without God giving you a new heart. God has to change you. He has to change me on the inside. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And today, I want to invite you to do that. Would you bow your heads, please? Some of you today need to do what Mr. Ledford did. You've never followed the Lord in baptism. Baptism doesn't save you. But you've never obeyed God in that next step of baptism. You need to follow him. You need to find one of these men. Our staff members will be down here. They'll be masked up, and, and we'll, we practice all the safety protocols that, that we can. And, uh, but you need to come say, I need to get my baptism right. Remember, it doesn't save you. It is a picture of salvation. But some of you have never been saved. Uh, you might be a church member. You might be a member of this church, but you've never truly given your heart, soul, mind, and strength to Jesus. You've never turned your life over to him, and you've never been saved. In the last few weeks, 
with what Tom preached and what Scott preached last week, you've been hearing, you've been hearing over and over about the need to be saved, about the need to trust Christ. And so I want to give you an opportunity to do that on this Easter Sunday. No better time. You will not be in a more supportive environment in your life than in a church on Easter Sunday. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray, and I'm going to ask you to just pray in your own words something like this prayer. And then when we stand up and when we begin to sing, the minute the prayer's over, we're going to stand and we're going to begin to sing. I want you to step out from where you are and come down and find one of these men and say, I'm trusting Jesus today, or I need to get my baptism right. We would never do anything to embarrass you. But Jesus died for you. He hung on a cross for you. And he is worthy of a walk down an aisle to make a profession of faith in him. So pray something like this. Dear Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. And I need a Savior. I don't want to just know about you. I want to know you. I repent of my sin, of my transgressions, my wrongdoings. I ask you to forgive me. And I thank you for the forgiveness that's been offered. I know I don't deserve it. But Lord Jesus, I need it. I need you to save me right here, right now. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing. You step out and you come right now.